Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 20. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we come before you as your children. We're so happy because of the mercy and grace that you give us, not only to become your children, bought with a price by the blood of Christ, as Nick shared in his prayer, but then the daily grace, and then the hope of heaven on top of all of that, so that no matter what we're facing this morning, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. But we have an eternal, blissful, wonderful, exciting future ahead of us. Lord, as we explore that a little bit more today with this installment in this series, Lord, I pray that every one of us would rejoice all the more because of your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 40 years ago when a historian, philosopher named Will Durant, very famous one, made an estimation. He noted that at that time, in the 3,124 years of recorded history, there had been only 268 of those years that had seen no war, which translates into 92% of recorded world history has been a time of war and conflict, no peace. And yet, that has been the very cry of people from the beginning, peace on earth, and if possible, even to create a utopia Way back in the days of the philosopher Plato, he talked about a, a, an ideal polis, he called it, the city-state ruled by a philosopher king in knowledge and equity, bringing peace. He longed for that. The Roman government actually attempted it, and for two centuries they brought in the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and enforced peace by taking pirates and thieves off the seaways and the roadways. Then there was the Pax Britannica. For a century, Britain ruled much of the inhabited earth and promoted a financial security and growth during that time. But it was back in 1516 when a guy by the name of Thomas Moore, Sir Thomas Moore, wrote a book called Utopia, a fictional island where there was the perfect legal, political, economic state the perfect place. We've always dreamed of that. Karl Marx envisioned that. He thought if we could just deal with class distinctions and move them out of the way, that virtually every social problem would be solved. And that cry for peace is with us today. It's on the back of cars with bumper stickers, the most famous being Visualize World Peace. Cry for Peace. I was on a website yesterday, and I found a website that sells peace bumper stickers. There are 1,005 different peace bumper stickers you could buy. That is the cry of the human heart, peace on earth. And some politicians have even included in their promise for the future biblical language, millennial language. As an example, Adolf Hitler with his imperialistic Reich, his reign, said that it would cover the whole earth and last for a thousand years. How horrible that would have been. Mao Zedong, 
The one-time dictator of China said his revolution would dominate the world for a thousand years. Now, for a moment, try to imagine, and really it's all we can do, but imagine a world of perfect peace, a world of perfect law, perfect order, perfect justice, Everything's always fair. Sin is dealt with immediately. All politicians are saints. I know you really, really have to stretch your imagination. Imagine a world where the health is such that if a person dies at a hundred years of age, they are said to be an infant because of the longevity of man being restored. Imagine a world where kids can go out and play in snake pits and find the snakes friendly. And the snakes can find the kids friendly. (laughs) Imagine a world where the food is overabundant, even though the population has increased dramatically on the earth. Now, that sounds like, to most people, pure fiction. That's a fairy tale. That's to most people. But to Bible readers, we know that that's exactly what the Bible promises will happen one day on this earth for a thousand years when Christ rules and reigns. Now, for that to happen, we can quickly understand that this earth would have to go through a reconstruction period. We would call it an extreme makeover, an extreme makeover. Well, we have been for 10 weeks looking in the Bible at eternity. We've been following a Christian from the moment of death to going into the portals of heaven. We've looked at the reunion with other believers. We've talked about the resurrection of our physical bodies, the capabilities of those bodies. We've talked about the throne room of heaven. And we've talked about the Bema Seat of Christ. And actually, we've just gotten started. We're now coming to the very heart of our eternal future in the next several weeks. And today we discuss an entirely different phase of it. A phase, honestly, most Christians do not believe, or not not believe, but really even think about. See, most people think you die and you go to heaven, you sit on a cloud, you play a harp, and you sing chants forever and ever and ever and ever. It's sort of the idea that goes through people's minds. There were two Christians, they were having a conversation, and one of them said, I have a one-way ticket to heaven and I'm never coming back. And the other Christian said, well, you're sure going to miss a lot then. I have a return ticket, frankly. I'm going to go to heaven, see Jesus in glory, then come back in power and glory to rule and reign with him. Now, that second Christian had his theology right, I believe. And we're going to look at that this morning. But on a personal note, I want to let you know, the more I personally study about the future, about heaven, about the millennium, about the eternal state, I get really stoked. And it's going to not be sitting on a cloud singing, ha for thousands and millions of years. Heaven is way cool, and it's multifaceted. It's not monolithic. There are different structures and different phases to it. And chapter 20 introduces one of those future phases called the millennium. It is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. John Walvoord, who taught prophecy for 50 years at Dallas Theological Seminary, writes, There are few verses in the Bible that are more crucial to the interpretation of the Bible as a whole than the opening verses of Revelation chapter 20. You know why that is? Because Revelation 20 tells us the climax of earth's history. 
This is where it all culminates. And once this phase is done, all of life as we know it on earth is finished. It's the climax and the culmination. Now let's look at the first, let's say, seven verses together, and then we'll go back and make a few comments. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. First thing I'd like you to notice, the most obvious, is the extent of this kingdom age. When I refer to the kingdom age, I'm referring particularly to the thousand years that we're talking about. Notice the extent of it. It is worldwide. Four corners of the earth are involved, and it lasts a thousand years. Six times in seven verses is that precise little phrase, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years thousand years. So how long is it going to be? A thousand years. That's the extent of it. That's the millennium. And that word sort of gets lost with some believers. There was a theological student in school, brand new one, didn't study that week. And so the test came on a certain day and he looked down at the first question. The first question is, what is the millennium? (laughs) He didn't know how to answer it. So He said, the millennium is the same as a centennial, only it has a lot more legs. (laughs) He's thinking in terms of a bug. Well, unfortunately, there are some believers who don't have a better grasp on the millennium than even that. Now, chapter 20 of Revelation is simply a basic outline form of this kingdom age. There's not a whole lot of information given on it. It's very, very minimal. The character and nature of it is, is not fleshed out here. There are hundreds, hundreds of verses in other parts of Scripture, all the talk about the kingdom age, about the only information we're given is that it lasts a thousand years, the great highlight is Satan is bound, and just a few other details about it, which we're going to cover in weeks to come. Now, throughout the Bible, this millennium or this kingdom age is given several different titles. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, in the regeneration, and in the original language it means the new genesis, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. That's this era, the kingdom age. 
In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the kingdom is called the times of refreshing. And in the same chapter, verse 21, the time of the restoration of all things. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul describes it as the dispensation of the fullness of the times. So there's a lot of different titles this millennial kingdom is called. Let me give you just a quick bottom line description. This is a time when the earth will have undergone massive topographical, geological, and climactic changes that will resemble very similar to the original design of the earth with the Garden of Eden. Now again, just try to imagine this. I don't know if you're like me. I love the outdoors, love going up to the mountains, love to go on a bicycle ride, love to smell the air after the rain. Wow, I love it. God's done a great job in making this earth, hasn't he? The earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24, and the fullness thereof. And we get to enjoy it. Now, imagine an earth that is recreated like it was intended to be from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, and you in resurrected, glorified bodies, no aches, no groans, no complaints, for a thousand years. That's the millennium. Now, the very thought of the term millennium gets a little people, or some people, a little bit tweaked. Here, you know, just the idea of a millennium. Um, It seems that every thousand-year mark on a calendar, people start to act strange. Do you remember the millennial madness just before the year 2000? Remember all the talk, the world's going to end, the computers are going to all freeze, and life as we know it is going to cease. That's not that uncommon. In the year 1000, here's an article from Psychology Today. Legend has it that at midnight on January 1st, 1000, the entire population of Iceland converted en masse to Christianity in the belief that they were about to experience the apocalypse. At the same time, in Rome, many expected the end of the world and prepared themselves in various ways, including giving away all possessions, doing penance, mortifying their flesh, and wearing sackcloth and ashes. The very word millennium, or the thousand-year or two-thousand-year mark, evokes all sorts of emotion in us. I remember before the year 2000 in the late 90s, all of the groups that used the millennium mark as their target date. They said, by the year 2000, we want to end world hunger. By the year 2000, we want a drug-free society. By the year 2000, we want to find a cure for cancer. By the way, in the millennium, all that will be true. All that will be true. The kingdom here then is given only in summary terms. If we were to study... All of the verses in the Bible about the kingdom age, we would be doing it for months and months and months. There's a lot of literature on it in the Bible. Okay, that's the extent of it. Now the explanation of it. Did you know that Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most hotly contested verses of the Bible? It's a theological battleground. And here's the battle lines. Are we to take Revelation chapter 20... Symbolically, allegorically, spiritually, or is this to be taken literally, actually? Is this going to be an event in our future in time and space? And it's that question that is the dividing line. So 
in explaining the thousand years, though it is mentioned six times in seven verses, very specific, let me give you quickly three main viewpoints about this idea of the millennium. First, and it's in your outline, is the premillennial view. Simply stated, Jesus Christ will return to the earth before pre-millennium. He'll come back and then set up his kingdom. We believe, or that view believes, in the personal, bodily, glorious return of Jesus to the earth where he will set up his throne and rule from Jerusalem over the throne of David for a thousand years and over the whole world. Now, if you were to just read the Bible without any other books, just read it simply, plainly, literally, straightforward, you would have a premillennial view. Even people who oppose this view will admit that. A plain rendering will give you that interpretation. And this was once the dominant view of the early church. In fact, it's hard to find any other viewpoint until A.D. 190. The apostles believed this. The post-apostolic fathers believed this and wrote about it. It is the dominant viewpoint of the early church. Around A.D. 190, this group of theologians, scholars, down in Alexandria, Egypt, in a theological school, decided we can't take the Bible literally. It has to be all figurative, all symbolic, and they sought to find shades of meaning below the surface of the literal text. By the way, when they did this, most of the rest of the church said that is heresy. The Bible is to be taken at face value. And many, here's just a sampling, many of the early church writers, Papias, the writer of the epistle of Barnabas, it's called Pseudo-Barnabas. I was reading this yesterday morning. That little book, fascinating. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Hippolytus all believed in a premillennial viewpoint. That is, Jesus will come back to the earth bodily, physically, gloriously, and set up a kingdom. Here's a quote from Papias. You go, who on earth is Papias? Papias, tradition says, was mentored by John the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation. He was one of his students. Papias wrote, There will be a millennium following the resurrection of the dead when the kingdom of Christ is to be established on the earth. Justin Martyr, who I mentioned, also said, quote, The city of Jerusalem will be enlarged and rebuilt just as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah have declared. And he said, virtually all authorities believe that except those Gnostic heretics. So that was the dominant viewpoint, the pre-millennial viewpoint. But not everybody holds to that. There is something called post-millennialism. Now, the the terms, don't let them throw you. It's pretty easy to figure it out. Post, after the millennium. They believe that Jesus Christ will come back after a period of time where we, God's people on the earth, Christianize the world and present the world to Jesus Christ, present the kingdom when he comes back after a period of time, not necessarily exactly a thousand years. It's the idea that we're going to spread the gospel, Christianize the world, and the world's going to get better and better 
and better and so good that everyone's a Christian and we will then bring the kingdom and give it to Jesus. Now, this is a viewpoint that was popular in the 19th century and early 20th century. The Industrial Revolution, scientific uh, advancements had given people the idea that, hey, we are bringing in utopia. We're really doing this. Now, it's not very popular today. That whole idea fell off. And, and so the fair question is, well, whatever happened to post-millennialism? Here's the answer. World War I happened to it. The Great Depression happened to it. World War II happened to it. The Nazi Holocaust happened to it. There was enough catastrophic, catastrophic events that caused people to go, oh, I guess the world isn't getting better and better, but rather worse and worse. Now... It's not completely gone away. It has resurfaced. There are some. And it's been repackaged in what's called dominion theology. I don't know if you've heard the term dominion theology or kingdom theology or kingdom now or constructionism or theonomy. All the same thing. And it's the idea that we're going to take dominion over the earth and we're going to establish the kingdom of God. We're going to control institutions. We're going to control the White House and the Congress and the Senate. We need to be the rulers. We need to bring in the kingdom of Christ through the body politic. And when we do that, we will present the kingdom to Christ as if he needed our help. That's the idea. There is a third viewpoint, and it's a popular viewpoint. It's called amillennialism. Amillennialism. That is, there is no millennium. That is literally... It's like, you, you can't take this literally. It's not really going to happen as a thousand years. It's all figurative. It's all spiritual. In fact, listen to this. They say, the kingdom is now. You're in it. You're in the millennium now. All of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's kingdom are being fulfilled in the church now. Jesus is ruling and reigning spiritually over his church. This is the kingdom Also, this viewpoint says, oh yeah, all those promises in the Old Testament to Israel about literally having a kingdom and ruling from Mount Zion and etc., those are out now. They only apply spiritually, allegorically to us, the church. There is no throne of David. There is no literal Jerusalem that will be rebuilt. So that viewpoint says this is as good as it will ever get. Now, can I just say... If this is the kingdom age, I'm terribly, terribly disappointed. If this is the millennium, then we have a case where the book is a whole lot better than the movie. You know what I mean? You read the book, it's like, wow, that's cool. If this is the movie, it's not a very good rendition of it. And the question I would have is, why did God spend the whole book of Revelation just to tell us what is really not going to happen? Now, by now, you've probably figured out that I'm a pretty staunch premillennialist, and I take a literal approach to the Bible. Why is that? Number one, because of the chronology of Revelation. It's a pretty straightforward book, honestly. The outline is given in the first part of it. It tells you how it's going to unfold. It tells you the structure and the timeline. Then it goes right through a chronology. Chapter 6 through 19 is all... The tribulation period, the worst period on earth. You can read through that and go, man, there's never been anything like that on the earth. That's the worst, just like Jesus said would happen. 
Then chapter 19, Jesus comes back to the earth with his people to put an end to a huge battle that takes place over in the Middle East. And all of that, chapter 6 through 19, is pre-millennial. It's before the millennium. Then if you look at chapter 21, we discover that the earth as we know it, the created order, is all destroyed. It's been tainted by sin. The earth is taken away, removed, and God creates a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And that's the eternal state. So sandwiched in between all of Revelation 6 through 19 and chapter 21, the eternal state, happens to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. If you read plainly and chronologically, it fits no problem. Second reason is because the early church, as I mentioned, believed in the earthly, historical reign of Christ on the earth initiated by his coming. It wasn't until those Alexandrian dudes down in Egypt decided, let's allegorize the whole thing. People like Clement and Origen. And then eventually as church history went on, have you heard the name Augustine? He sort of crystallized this millennial viewpoint and put, sort of sealed that as the dominant theology of the Roman Catholic Church, of the Protestant Reformation. Men like Luther and Calvin, etc., bought into that, unfortunately. But here's the most compelling reason to take it literally. Ready? Because it happens to be the best way to interpret the Bible. And I'm going to explain. But I love what Vance Havner once said. He said, it's always easier to understand what the Bible actually says than to understand what somebody else thinks it meant to say. You ever had somebody go, well, I know it really says that, and it's pretty obvious what it is, but it doesn't mean that, it means this. And you go, how'd you get that? See, how are we going to say, well, we don't interpret the Bible prophecy literally, but we interpret the rest of the Bible literally? Really? On what basis? What gives you the basis to do that? What right do any of us have to have an approach to interpretation, a hermeneutic, and then depart from it? That's the important question. I'll give you an example. Now, the angel came to Joseph. And the angel said to Joseph, you're going to call his name Jesus. And he's going to save his people from their sins. Now, is that just figurative? No, a a, a literal baby was born and they named him Jesus. And he went on to save people from their sins. The same angel came to Mary and said, You will call his name Jesus and he will be great and called the Son of the Highest. Now, is that just figurative? No, that's literal. But listen to the rest. And he will rule over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Is that literal or figurative? It's just as literal. And yet the amillennialist will say, well, the first part's literal and the second part's just allegorical. You can't split your interpretation. So when we go through the Bible, at least my approach has been a grammatical, historical, contextual, literal hermeneutic or interpretation. And amillennialism will depart from that. Here's another question. When you look in the Old Testament, remember all those promises God offers blessings and cursings to Israel? And he says, okay, tell you what, if you really mess up, I'm kicking you out of the land. Did he mean that literally or figuratively? I think he meant it literally because they got kicked out of the land. 
And God said, you're going to be there for 70 years in Babylon. Was that just figurative? No, it happened to be literally 70 years, and then they came back. So if all of the judgments to Israel have happened literally, who are we to say, yeah, but all the blessings are only figurative and spiritual, and they apply only to the church? You get messed up. If a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, what does it mean? What does it mean? And if you notice through the book of Revelation how number conscious it is, there's exact numbers given. For instance, there's seven churches. And there's seven leaders of seven churches. There's 12 tribes. There's 12 apostles, all literal so far. There's one-third of mankind. There's another fourth of mankind. There are two witnesses, 42 months, 1,260 days. There's uh, 144,000. There's 12,000 furlongs. What do you do with all those numbers? If 12 doesn't mean 12, then what does 12 mean? And if a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, then what does a thousand mean? If you just read this at face value, then there's a real kingdom for Israel in Jerusalem from the throne of David by a Messiah who's from the lineage of David and it will last a thousand years just at face value. And that's how the early church took it. Okay, enough said on that. My last point will be much briefer to which some of you are going, thank you, Lord. Talked about the extent of it and the explanation of it. What about the essentiality of it? What's the big deal? Why do we need it? There's something interesting in verse 3. He cast him, that is the devil, into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Notice the word he says he should not deceive the nations, or better put, in order so that he would not. This is a necessity to get rid of the devil for a thousand years. Until the thousand years were finished, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I know what you're thinking. Why? I mean, once you got him in jail, why on earth would you let him out? Right? I'll answer that next week. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the need, the necessity for a thousand-year reign. Why would God hassle with a thousand years on the earth? You know, why not just go directly to the eternal state? Why the extra step of the earth? What's all that about? Sort of like the Monopoly game. You know, you get the card that says, go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Why didn't God say go directly to the eternal state? Do not go to the millennium. Why not? What's the hassle of the earth? I'll give you a few reasons. Number one, to redeem creation from judgment. I think you've noticed there's a curse on this earth. It started back in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of mankind. The earth has been cursed ever since. We are experiencing that even today. Beyond that curse of sin, the book of Revelation indicates that there's going to be tremendous, catastrophic, cataclysmic judgment that falls upon the earth during the tribulation period. If you think we've ruined the earth, where do you see what God does with it? He decimates it. He trashes it during the tribulation period. Utterly. So that the millennium will be the answer to the 2,000-year-old prayer that his church has been praying. Listen to it in the context of this morning. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will be fully answered and has never totally been answered yet, but will be fully answered during the millennium. The earth will be fixed. There's a great story from the early days of the automobile when a man was out in his car, a Model T Ford, that's about the only thing on the road, and they had a lot of problems with the early models, so he broke down on the side of the road and he was out there trying to crank it. There's Cars were hand-cranked. I was going to say, remember that, but I don't think anybody here would. So he tries to crank it. It won't start. He advances the spark. It won't start. He changes the plugs. It won't start. He can't get the thing to run. Suddenly, a limousine pulls up. And out of the limousine, a nicely dressed man walks over and says, could I help? The guy thinks, yeah, right. But this nicely dressed, dapper gentleman tinkers with a few things and says, try it now starts up immediately. And then the man proceeds to introduce himself. My name is Henry Ford. I designed and built this car, so I know what to do when something goes wrong. There's only one person who can fix the earth. It's not any politician. It's not any party. It's only the one who made it. And the one who made it and the one who will judge it is the one who will remake it and will live in it for a thousand years. By the way, can I just add a P.S. to that? No matter what you're going through today, no matter what your life, what you're dealing with, God and God alone can reconstruct and heal you. He can fix that which is broken. That's what he does. He's a redeemer. He's all about that. So to redeem creation from the curse. Second, all of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel have yet to be fulfilled. If you're a reader of the Bible, and I take it most of you have read through the Bible, you know that in the Old Testament there are countless promises that Israel will enjoy a period of unparalleled peace, prosperity with Messiah reigning from Jerusalem, and it will go over the whole earth. That has never happened yet. God promised the Jews a physical and a spiritual kingdom. I think of 2 Samuel 7, the covenant to David. Psalm 89, he confirmed it with an oath. The millennial kingdom is phase one of fulfilling that promise. This is the earthly reign of Christ from Jerusalem on the earth. By the way, there's probably more scripture written about the kingdom age than almost any other topic in the Bible. Some even think the main theme of the Bible is the kingdom because of the amount of text that is written about it. So, when the millennium is on the earth, when that's done, when that's done, then the created order as we know it, it's over. At that point, God will destroy this earth tainted by sin. It's completely removed, done away with. The Bible says that in a number of places. Then God will, re- will create a new heaven and a new earth, new Jerusalem, and that's the eternal state whole nother phase. This is getting cooler the more we study about it. Finally and quickly, the millennium is essential because it will reveal man's rebellious nature. And during the millennial kingdom, and I'll just say briefly today and we'll get into it in detail later, rebellion, though it will still be in the hearts of people, will not be allowed to flourish. It will be kept in check. Those who will rule and reign do so, the Bible says, with a rod of iron 
You only need to rule with a rod of iron if there's the possibility of an upset. But justice will be enacted swiftly. Sin will be dealt with immediately. There will be a reign of Christ upon the earth. Now, you and I will be in our resurrected, glorified bodies. But people who are in the tribulation period who survive it and are allowed to go in the kingdom age, they're in their normal physical mortal bodies. Now, you're going, God, oh man, that's weird. I can't think. That's, how does that work? It should not be weird to you. You have read about it in the Bible. Jesus Christ rose from the dead in a resurrected, glorified body and ate meals and took walks with disciples in their mortal bodies. There was a perfect commingling of entities. You've read about it. So we'll be in resurrected, glorified bodies. People on the earth, though the longevity of the earth will be extended and people will live a lot longer, there will still be death. There will still be the possibility of rebellion, still be the possibility of sin, though kept in check. And after the millennium's all done, when Satan is released and has his way back on this earth for a period of time, there will be a rebellion. And it's going to prove something. All of this nonsense of, well, if we just had a perfect environment, we'd be perfect. I am the way I am because of my environment. It's not really my fault. It's everybody else in the world's fault. No, all of us have a sin nature. And the perfect environment of the millennium that will still eventuate in a rebellion will prove once and for all you can, you can take man out of the slums, but you can't take the slums out of man. And only one person can change the heart of a person, and that is Jesus Christ. And some will follow him during that time, and some will rebel against him, even after a period of perfection. So, people have longed for utopia. Poets have written about it. Songwriters have sung about it. Politicians have campaigned on that promise. It will never happen until Jesus comes. And can you hear the rain? Is that rain? Isn't that beautiful? Imagine how good it'll be in the millennium. Let me close with this. C.S. Lewis wrote, perfect background, noise for this. If I find myself having a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you're wondering why I'm not satisfied, I've had so many relationships with people, I've tried so many different things and experiences, and I'm still not satisfied. You weren't made for this world, friend. God put eternity in your hearts. And a relationship with Jesus Christ, that alone can water your soul like this rain pouring down on our earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because we remember... It was Isaiah the prophet who said, As the rain comes and the snow comes down from heaven and waters the earth and does not return there, but gives bread to the eater and seed to the sower, so is my word that comes forth from my mouth. It will not return void. We pray, Lord, that as your word has watered our hearts and filled in a lot of the blanks, no longer do we have this vague notion of just a spiritual wisp running around the spiritual heavens sitting on clouds forever, but a very real place with different distinct phases to it and purposes for it, a place to explore, a place to see your glory. I pray, Father, that everyone here who has come will be ready for that. 
I pray that every person here will have accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, rule over our hearts now so that we'll be part of the rule over this earth and in eternal state from here on out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.